0: Good morning, I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're going to be talking this morning about following the rabbi. We're still examining the first part of the body of this fourth gospel, which runs from 119 to 1250. And in this section, it records Yeshua's public ministry to the multitudes in Palestine who were primarily Judeans. One of the themes of the first 34 verses is the concept of Witness. In either noun or verb form, the word appears seven times in the opening 34 verses. And as we begin the body of the letter, Lazarus' emphasis is on John the Baptist as a witness to Yeshua. Everything is focused on John's testimony of Yeshua. That's his whole reason for being, is to point to Christ. Now, as we said, John's testimony here takes place over three days, and is given to three different groups. Day one, John says, here he is. And he's talking to a hostile delegation that's been sent from the Sanhedrin. On day two, John says, look at him, speaking to the mass of people that are there. And on day three, which we are going to be examining today, he says, follow him, speaking to his own disciples. So three days, three messages, three different groups. As we look at verses 38 to 51, and we'll break these up over two weeks, we'll split it naturally where John does. It's two different groups. The first really focuses on Andrew and Peter, and we're going to look at that today. And the second focuses on Philip and Nathaniel. In verses 35 and 36, we see a transition from John the Baptist's witness to the ministry of Yeshua. In other words, he's been pointing to him, pointing to him, and now John just kind of fades away and it's about Yeshua. Yeshua. Verse 35 says, again, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. Verses 35 through 42 describe the third day in the time sequence. John is relating. Verse 43 through 51, which we'll look at next week, are placed on the fourth day. Now, on day three, we're still at the location of Bethany. Now, this is important for you to understand, all right? John the Baptist is out here in the wilderness at Bethany, not the Bethany near Jerusalem the one out by the Jordan River, and he's baptizing across the Jordan. He's in the wilderness. He's preaching out here, and he's baptizing. So keep that in mind. That's the location on the third day. He's still out there. It says, John was standing with two of his disciples. So we see from this that John had disciples of his own, and I think we already understand that. I previously said Yeshua was probably one of John's disciples. John's Talmudim... Or disciples were a group set apart in many different ways. They they talks about their baptism. It talks about their rules for prayer. it talks about the rules for fasting. We just to look at one verse in Mark two eighteen. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Yeshua, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So we see that John had his own disciples, kind of doing their own thing. Now, some of them continued as John's disciples after his death. We see that in Mark 6.29 and Acts 19.3. So John had disciples, and here in our text, he's standing with two of them. Who are these two disciples? Well, if you want to find out, you just drop down to verse 40. that says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So here we see that one of them is Andrew. Who's the other one? Who's the other disciple that's here with John? Well, the other one's never mentioned. It just says there are two and he's not mentioned. Now that's kind of weird. Why say there's two and only mention one? Well, as you're reading through the Gospel of John, you soon discover that whenever there's an obvious, there's this obvious attempt to withhold the identity of some key person. All right? It's usually Lazarus, when that happens, it's usually Lazarus refraining from naming himself. He calls himself the other disciple. He calls himself the disciple whom Yeshua loved. And in John 22, he calls himself the other disciple whom Yeshua loved. But he never identifies himself by name. And I think it seems safe to say that when Lazarus doesn't mention the other disciple here, he's not mentioning him because it's himself. And so he just says there are two of them. He gives the name of one of them and he keeps this disciple anonymous. That's just how John is. Lazarus does it through this text. All right? In the next verse, he says, He looked at Yeshua as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, the He here is John. He is speaking privately to two of his disciples, Andrew and Lazarus, and the baptizer repeats to them what he stated publicly the day before Behold, the Lamb of God. Lazarus again identifies Yeshua. As this sacrificial lamb. The word in the Greek here for lamb is amnos. And this word only occurs here in, twice in John 1. Here and in, in verse 29. It occurs nowhere else except Acts 8.32 and 1 Peter 1.19. And we looked at those last time. So if you're interested, you can go back to the last time and connect those. But it's a specific word for lamb here. He says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, I think when he said this, it probably didn't register with the majority of apostate Israel. Behold the lamb. They're not looking for a lamb. They're not looking for a sacrifice. They're not looking for a savior. They're looking for a king to come in and overthrow Rome and set them free. That's all they want. They don't see themselves as sinners. They're apostate. The the religious establishment in Jerusalem was just totally apostate. But the Lamb of God would have registered with those who had a true understanding of the Tanakh. They would call to mind what they knew about the substitutionary, sacrificial Lamb of God at the Passover. They'd think of that. They'd probably also think of Isaiah 53, 7. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Whatever they were thinking, they leave John the Baptist and they start following Yeshua. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Yeshua. Now remember, this is the appointed purpose of John's ministry. To prepare, prepare the way of Yahweh. So here's John, he's with his disciples, and he, Yeshua comes and he says, go follow him. You will not hear modern day preachers saying that. Okay? You're not going to hear him say, that guy over there is a great preacher, you ought to go listen to him. No. Because they're all about building their own kingdom, preparing their own thing. John, his ministry, as he said when he quoted Isaiah 40 verse 3, I'm a voice. I'm just a voice to prepare the way for Yeshua. Call attention to Him. That's all He's about. Notice what John's going to say later in chapter 3. He says, You yourself are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ. John makes that very specific. But, he says, I've been set ahead of Him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. The increase of Yeshua, attention drawn to Him, that's the whole of John's ministry. He's just a very humble man. He knows His purpose in life. He's not confused. He's not trying to gain followers for Himself. He's been teaching, and now the Lamb of God's on the scene, so He says, go, follow Him. It says, and they followed Him. The word here, followed, is Akil Lutheo. Lutheo, And Ther defines it this way. Very interesting. To join one as a disciple to become or be his disciple. Now you read that in the text and he followed them. Well, that just means they're walking behind somebody. No, he's trying to tell us they became disciples of Yeshua. They are following Him. In the New Testament, and especially in the Gospels, this word, speaks of discipleship and the reader would immediately think okay these guys left John they're starting to become they're becoming disciples of Yeshua John's mission is complete and now he kind of disappears from the scene his followers become followers of Yeshua now what we don't see here really that I think is behind the scenes is there's a spiritual dynamic operating here that I don't think these guys even are aware of when they begin to follow Yeshua but later In this Gospel, in chapter 15, Yeshua's going to say to His disciples, you didn't choose Me. I chose you. Okay? So, they're probably thinking here, hey, this guy's the man, we got to follow him. But all behind the scenes, Yeshua is bringing them along. He has chosen them to be His disciples. Verse 38 says, And Yeshua turned and saw them following, and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to Him, Rabbi, which John says being translated means teacher, where are you staying? That's a strange verse if you just kind of focus on it, okay? He sees these guys. Hey, what do you guys want? Hey, where do you stay? What? What's happening here? Well, Yeshua first asks him, what do you seek? Yeshua knows what's going on. He knows they're following him because they want to be his disciples. And he's asking, basically, why do you want to be my disciple? That's what his question is. That's underlying here. We'll see as we go through this gospel that there's multi-leveled meanings in the language that we see in John. We see people talking on a physical level, and yet Yeshua takes their language and he leads them to a deeper spiritual level of what's going on. For example, Nicodemus in John chapter 3 talks about the spiritual physical birth. How how does a man be born again? How's that happen? But Yeshua is talking about a spiritual birth. The one with the well is talking about water. Physical water. How do I get that water? And Yeshua's talking about spiritual, living water. We see that in the crowds ask for physical bread, but Yeshua is trying to get them to see that He is the living bread. The Pharisees deal with a man that's given physical sight, but behind it all, Yeshua wants to see they need spiritual sight. They're blind. So the question that Yeshua asked these two disciples, I think is a good question for all of us to contemplate. What do we seek? And he's asking this question in relation to him, alright? In relation to Christ, what do you seek? In other words, what's your purpose in life? What is it? How does it connect with Christ? What are your goals? See, too often, so many people's goals are just to make a living. Be a success. Have a, a business. Have your children grow up to be normal citizens. Enjoy life. Some people's goals to be rich. Some's just to have fun. And Yeshua's questioning them because He wants them to think through this. What do you seek? What is really that you're after in life? You know, it's possible that we've been Christians for a long time and we still don't have a concept of what it means or what we should be seeking as Christians as far as Christ is concerned. Because today things are all turned around. See, Christ is just there to meet your every need. He's a health wealth gospel. He's a genie in a bottle. You rub your Bible and, you know, the Lord pops out and says, three wishes, what would you like? You know, that's our society today. So what are we seeking? Too many people follow Christ because they want something, just like in His day. You, he says, you follow me because I fed you. You know, they want something. What does the Westminster Confession of Faith say that the chief end of man is? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him. For him. In other words, that's our purpose. That's the reason we live. To enjoy Him. To glorify Him. We should be seeking as believers Him. Yeshua said this in Matthew 6.33, Seek first His kingdom, His righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Anything you want in life that's really meaningful, you'll get by seeking Christ first. Now here's the thing we have to understand, people. And we got to think about this. But if we're truly seeking Him, if we're truly seeking His righteousness, then whatever circumstances we live in don't matter. Because, you know, it's not about the circumstance. We're seeking Him and He controls the circumstance. So whatever circumstance we're in is fine for Him. So it's fine for us because it's about Him. But the problem, the rub is too often our lives not about Him. So circumstances really upset us. Because see, I had this plan. And these circumstances are ruining my plan. But when we follow Him and it's all about Him, then whatever happens is like, Lord, it's You. It's about You. We'll just do it. We'll we'll go along with it. So he's trying to probe these guys. He's trying to get them to really think about what's going on. What do you seek? Notice what you should. It says here, they call him rabbi. They said to him, rabbi. Now why does John Eliezer translate rabbi here? Why does he say, well, he said rabbi, but that means teacher. Why does he do that? I think he's most likely writing this gospel to a first-century congregation in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, that is largely composed of Gentiles. All right, they're not familiar with Jewish customs, and so he stops and explains it. They call him rabbis. Well, they mean teacher. All right, and the fact that he interpret the word rabbi. For his readers, I think it's just clear evidence that he's writing to Gentiles. They don't understand this, so he he'll do that several times, you know, in the text. Now the word teacher really doesn't communicate the depth of respect in the Hebrew word rabbi. All right, teacher doesn't, there's no correlation here, so it's you know it's better if we understand it as rabbi, because teacher just no. Rabbi literally means my great one in Hebrew. The Jews' respect for knowledge was so great, biblical knowledge, that the teachers were the greatest people in their culture. That's what they looked to because what they wanted was a knowledge of God. They were seeking God so someone who can help us. when that, that's, the, that's the highest on the ladder, okay, to us in that culture. There's really no higher compliment these two disciples could pay another human being than to call him rabbi. Why did they call him rabbi? Why would they call Yeshua a rabbi? This is really deep, so hang on, okay? They called him rabbi because he was a rabbi, all right? I know that's hard. You you have to wrestle with that for a while, but you'll get that one. Listen, I don't think we understand this, and it kind of confuses us some, but Yeshua functioned in the first century as a man who was a Jewish rabbi. And if you want to understand his teaching at a deeper level, you need to understand something about Jewish rabbis and their teaching because his teaching followed along the same pattern as the rabbis of that day. Let me, let me state some of the obvious things that people miss. Our Savior's name when he walked this earth was Yeshua. It wasn't Jesus. Matthew 1, 1 through 1-16 makes it clear that he came from Hebrew descent. He was of the tribe of Judah. In other words, he's Jewish, all right? And he was born and raised by Jewish parents who raised him in the Jewish culture. He spoke Hebrew. The name Yeshua is literally a transliteration of the Messiah's name. So when someone says Yeshua, they're speaking Hebrew. This is the name that all the apostles would have known him by. This is the name his mother would have called him. The name Yeshua really means Yahweh's salvation or Yahweh saves. Now, from accounts in Jewish sources, one can form a reasonably accurate picture of what Yeshua was doing in his childhood and adolescence. And some of the Apocrypha accounts, I think, are really far out. They got him, you know, which I think are crazy. They got him stretching lumber for his dad. You know, he cut a board too short. I can take care of that. Let me stretch this out. You know, he's taking clay birds and making them fly, you know. John's going to, we're going to look at this in chapter 2, but when he turns water to wine, he says, this is the first of the miracles, all right, that he did, all right. So I think the account, if you want to understand what he did in early childhood, he did what every other child in that culture did. They spent all their time committing to memory scripture, scripture and commentary on scripture. They, they spent time reading and memorizing all the available sacred literature of the day. This is what all Jewish boys would have done in that time. It's hard for us to grasp because we are, our culture's into entertainment. Alright, these people just focused on the Word of God. They were always memorizing, always saying the Scripture out loud, always working on learning the Scripture. The memorization of written and oral Torah was such a large part of Jewish education that most contemporaries of Yeshua had large parts of the Scripture memorized. So when he's talking to these people and he's quoting Scripture, they're not scratching their heads. Where would he get that from? They know where it comes from. Professor Rabbi Shmuel Safari, who was Professor Ametrius of Jewish history during the Talmudic period, or on the Talmudic period at the Hebrew University, he writes this, the scriptures were known almost by heart by everyone. He's talking about the second temple period, the time when Yeshua lived. Is that an exaggeration? I really don't think it is. They were known by heart by almost everyone. Now you jump up to our culture and we could say the scriptures were not known by anyone, okay? Because people don't. I mean, go to your average Christian and just start talking about scripture. They, they don't know. They know what they've heard in church, My preacher said this, but take him to the Scriptures. And I think that's the biggest stumbling block for us to try to share the truth of preterism with anybody. They have not a frame of reference. There's nothing to go from. He says, from quite early in the Second Temple period, one could hardly find a little boy in the street who didn't know the Scriptures. According to Jerome, who lived in Bethlehem and learned Hebrew from local Jewish residents in order to translate the Scriptures into Latin, producing the Vulgate Bible... There doesn't exist any Jewish child who doesn't know by heart the history from Adam to Zerubbabel, i.e., from the beginning to the end of the Bible. He says, perhaps this was a bit of an exaggeration on Jerome's part, but in most cases, his reports have proven reliable. So Yeshua was born, grew up and spent his ministry among people who knew the scriptures by memory, who debated its application with enthusiasm, who loved God with all their heart, all their soul, and all their might. This is what they did. They did scripture. When they got together, they talked about scripture. They quoted scripture. They read scripture. You know, in that con- in that culture, you didn't just get your Bible and go off into a corner and read. It was more you read out loud and it was a thing that people did together. So God prepared this environment so that Yeshua would be in the perfect environment for his time. He fit his world perfectly. And understanding this helps us to see the great faith and courage of his followers who left Galilee and went into the whole world to bring the good news. Their courage, their message, their methods, they use... Their complete devotion to God and His Word were born in the religious communities in Galilee. Now, notice that okay, Galilee, Capernaum is up here, the very top of the screen. And you've got Bethany way down here. This is where John is baptizing at. So let's talk a little bit about Capernaum. It's a little small village, about 2,500 people, time of Christ. You would maybe think of it as a little small hick town up there, okay? This would be wrong. You know, people think in this time period, they think Jerusalem, the center of learning, the center of education, right? No, it was really Capernaum, all right? In Yeshua's day, Capernaum was the Harvard or the Yale. If you take the Mishnah, which is the record of Jewish thinking from AD 0 to eighty one hundred, there are more quotes from rabbis of Capernaum than all the other rabbis put together. The synagogue school found in Capernaum is four times larger than any synagogue school found until the 1500s. This is the world where Yeshua ministered. A world highly educated in the Word of God. And by the time Yeshua began His public ministry, He had not only received the thorough religious training typical of the average Jew of His day, He had probably spent years studying with one of the outstanding rabbis in Galilee. Yeshua thus appeared on the scene as a respected rabbi himself. All the important rabbis, by the way, came from the Galilee area, not Jerusalem. Alright? Keep this in mind. Jerusalem, in the time of Christ, is apostate. There's nothing spiritual happening there. The term rabbi, in the time of Yeshua, didn't necessarily refer to a specific office or occupation. That only happens after AD 70. It became kind of a, you know, an office, so to speak. It was a word that meant great one or my master, which was applied to many kinds of people in everyday speech. It clearly was used as a term of respect for one's teacher as well. Even though the formal position of rabbi would come later, calling Yeshua rabbi by the people of his day is a measure of the great respect they had for him as a person and as a teacher. It's not just a reference to what he was engaged in. Many people in Yeshua's day called him rabbi. If you go through the scriptures, you find out his disciples called him rabbi. Peter called him rabbi. Peter said to Yeshua, rabbi, is it good for us to be here? The crowds called him rabbi, we see in John 6.25. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, rabbi, when did you get here? So Yeshua was called rabbi by a diversity of people. We find in scripture a lawyer calls him rabbi, a rich man calls him rabbi, a Pharisee calls him rabbi, a Sadducee, Peter, ordinary people. Clearly, there's a wide range of Yeshua's contemporaries who saw him as a rabbi. Now, from the gospel accounts, what, we gotta ask, what was it like to be a rabbi in the first century? I mean, what exactly does this mean? What was going on? So let me give you a little culture here. From the gospel, Yeshua clearly appears as a typical first century rabbi or Jewish teacher. He traveled from place to place. He depended on the hospitality of the people. He taught outdoors. He taught in homes and villages and synagogues in the temple. He had disciples who followed him as he traveled. So it wasn't like, okay, meet me at church at Sunday at 11 o'clock. We'll get together and have a good time. They lived with him. They followed him. They, everywhere they went, they went together. They followed him as he traveled. And this is the very image of a Jewish teacher in the land of Israel at that time. That's just how it was. Now, perhaps the most convincing proof that Yeshua was a rabbi was his style of teaching. He used the same methods of Scripture interpretation and instructions as the Jewish teachers of his day. A simple example of this would be Yeshua's use of parables in his teaching. We know he used a lot of parables, right? Parables such as Yeshua used were extremely prevalent among the Jewish sages. There's over 4,000 of them that have survived in rabbinic literature. That's how they taught with parables, illustrations. In Yeshua's day, there's two types of rabbis. The first are called Torah teachers. The word Torah is used to speak of the first five books of the Bible. Torah teachers were people who were considered to be masters of the Torah, which meant they knew the first five books of the Bible by memory. All right? And it's interesting, you can quiz them on this. You could say, Where in the Torah does it say, talk about doves? And they'll just take you through every reference. I mean, they can, they have a working knowledge. It's not just memory. They have a working knowledge of where everything is. They're like a computer would be today, you know? We have to look that stuff up. They had it committed to memory. They knew this stuff. Secondly, they were master teachers. They could use parables, they could use alliteration. They were recognized by the community as teachers of the Word of God. Now, a Torah teacher, this is really interesting, a Torah teacher could only teach what the community believed was right. So a Torah teacher couldn't become a preterist and start teaching that stuff, okay? They could only teach what the community believed was right. They were not allowed to come up with new teachings, Alright, so, boy, that puts you in a box. I wouldn't want to be in that box, alright? A Torah teacher would teach in three parts like this. He would say, it is written. And he'd quote the text by memory. And then he would say, and that means, and then he would quote one of the rabbis, or I mean, he would. that's what it means. He would explain using parables and stories. And then thirdly, he would say, according to. And then he'd quote one of the rabbis as an authority on the meaning. In other words, I'm not out here alone, so-and-so says this, okay? Because he's not allowed to give new teaching, so this is what so-and-so says. These men were brilliant teachers, but they were limited by the authority of others. They couldn't just delve in there and say, wow, the Lord's really shown me that. No, unless somebody else saw that, they couldn't do that. Well, in Yeshua's world, there was also a small group of what are called rabbis with shemika. We know about a dozen of them by name. They lived from 30 B.C. to A.D. 70. They were not common, but they did exist in Judea. All right, The rabbis with Shemikah were masters of the Torah and the Haftarah. Now the Haftarah is a Hebrew word that simply means the rest. In other words, they were masters of the whole Tanakh. Now that's a word I use a lot because I don't like to say Old Testament because I think it's a negative connotation. If it's old, we don't need it, but we do need the Tanakh. It teaches us much. Well, Tanakh is simply an acronym that identifies the Hebrew Bible. The acronym is based on the initial letters of each of the three parts. Torah, meaning instruction, Nevi'im, meaning prophets, and Ketuvim, meaning the writings. These rabbis knew the entire Tanakh by memory. If you can even fathom that. How many verses could you recite right now from the Tanakh? You know, I wonder if, if the country imploded quicker than I think it is and they made it outlaw to be a Christian they took away all our bibles if we got together how much of the scripture could we duplicate from our memory think about the time commitment it would take to memorize the tanakh i mean like i said this is what they worked and they worked on memorization of the bible because to them god was everything and they wanted to know him the best they could and the, these rabbis with shmika because of their un, unique ability to teach Torah, they received what was known as shmika. Shmika simply means authority. They had authority to teach new ideas. See, they were so close to God that God had given them insight into His Word. Hillel, you've heard that name, right? Hillel, Rabbi Hillel, he was a rabbi with shmika. Shammai was a rabbi with shmika. Gamaliel, they were rabbis that had shmika. This was their teaching method. It is written, quoting the Scriptures, you have heard that that means this, right? So all these rabbis are teaching this. But I say to you, it means this. They're giving new teaching. They're correcting the teaching of the day. Now, do you recognize that form of teaching? Because that's how Yeshua taught, right? Look at Matthew 5, 27, 28. You have heard that it was said, just exactly right. You shall not commit adultery. All right, you heard that right. It's been taught. But, I say to you, all right, that everyone who looks on a woman to lust with her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now notice what the people said of Yeshua's teaching. And they were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority. In other words, he's teaching like a rabbi with shmikah He's not teaching like the scribes. He was a part of a select group that was considered teachers with authority. They could make new teaching. Now these rabbis with Shemika had Talmud or disciples. Torah teachers did not have disciples. They didn't have people to follow them around, you know, watching them all the time. Only rabbis with Shemika had Talmudim. So Yeshua was not the only rabbi who had Talmudim. But what made Yeshua stand out? What the, makes them question here? They, they say this, How, how is your teach like this? How do you have authority? It's only 30 years old. And they're looking at it, How does someone only 30, You know, get this kind of authority? Hillel got his shemika when he was 70. Shammai got it when he was 85. And so they're just kind of blown away. Here's this young guy. He is teaching with authority. Now, each of these rabbis with shemikah had their own way of coming up with new teachings. And that method of interpretation was called their yoke. Their yoke. The yoke of the Torah is the way you take on the burden of keeping Torah on your shoulder. You do it according to their method. Every rabbi had a different yoke. Torah teachers would teach the acceptable interpretations or yoke of their community And Yeshua comes out and He says, take my yoke upon you, my yoke, and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, when you understand the true teaching, you're not under this great burden. So He's teaching them His yoke, His method of interpreting the Torah. Alright, back to the text. So He's a rabbi. He's fitting into the culture as a rabbi in that culture. So Yeshua asks them, what do you seek? And they respond, "Uh, where are you staying? We just want to know where you're staying. We want to know if you're in a nice motel or what. We're looking for a place to stay. Is the one you're staying in okay? Why in the world would they ask this? Where are you staying? Well, first of all, the Greek word translated staying here is important in John's Gospel. It is the Greek word mano. Now, if you're familiar with John's Gospel, this is a word that John really uses a lot. It's the same word he already uses the Holy Spirit when he said the Holy Spirit stayed or remained or abide on Yeshua. It's the same word that's used in John 15, several times translated abide. If you abide in me and my words abide. It's the Greek word mano. The three usage of it here in John, he uses it in verses 38 and 39, he uses that word three times. And he's using a word play here, he's bringing both connotations together, which is common in John. You know, it can just mean refer to a physical place. Or it can refer to a spiritual place. And when he's saying, "I want you to," mino, I want you to remain in me as my words remain in you. He's talking on a spiritual level. Well, here, Mano means to reside, but often it has theological connotations of continuing on, especially in an intimate relationship. Where are you staying? Seems to follow the traditional procedures of establishing of a unique bond between rabbi and talmudim. Their question implies that these two men wanted to spend more time with Yeshua than just have a conversation on the road. He says to them, what do you seek? So they're thinking, hmm, where are you staying? Because this is going to be a long conversation. All right, we can't answer this, right? We need to go wherever you're going. We need to be with you because we want more than just answering a few questions. They wanted to be with him. They wanted to learn from him. So they're leaving John the Baptist as their rabbi. They're attaching themselves to the Lord Yeshua on the authority of their rabbi, who said, follow him. And so they say, Rabbi. And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Come, and you will see. Now this expression was a conventional form of invitation in rabbinic literature drawing attention beforehand to something new, something important, something difficult. So as the rabbi sought to introduce a person to something new, they would say, come and see, because this is difficult. Or they would say, come and see, because this is really something important. Come and you shall see. And the Lord says to these two men, come and you will see. Now think about the spiritual level here. Is he saying, you'll see where I live? You'll see where you can reside? Or is he saying, if you follow me, you truly will have eyes that see. So Yeshua is encouraging John's two disciples to come and stay where He's saying, He's inviting them to be His disciples. Come, you will really see. On a level, your eyes will be opened. You will see where I'm staying and you'll see what I'm all about. But in the mind of Yeshua, in the mind of John, this meant, if you will truly come to me, you're going to have spiritual insight. Come, and you'll see. Now, the Hebrew thought here, there's a, there's a huge difference between a student and a disciple, all right? You've got to understand that in the Hebrew concept. To us, we say, okay, there's a teacher, and a teacher has a follower. Well, there's a difference between a student and a disciple. A student wants to know what the teacher knows. For whatever reason, a grade, a degree, or even out of respect to the teacher. I want to know what that teacher knows. But a Talmud wants to be like the teacher. That's what what the teacher is. That's what the teacher is. I want to be like the rabbi. I want to follow him. I want to be like him. And so the decision to follow a rabbi as a Talmud meant total commitment in the first century. I really think it means total commitment today if you decide to be Yeshua's disciple. And you, as a Christian, ought to be saying, I want to be like the rabbi. I want to spend so much time with him. I want to commune with him so often That I become like Him. I think like Him. I speak like Him. I am like Him. Totally devoted to becoming like the rabbi. This In in Yeshua's culture, they would have spent their entire time with Him. Like I said, it wasn't a meet me for discipleship class on Tuesday at this time. No. Just come follow me. You know, they lived with Him. They followed Him. They watched Him. They watched Him deal with people. A disciple is someone who more than anything else in the world wants to be like the rabbi. So let me ask you a question. Are you his disciple? If we're going to be disciples, we need to be focused on the rabbi. I think, and I take a lot of heat for this, I think there's a distinction in Scripture between a Christian and a disciple. A Christian is someone who trusts Christ. They put their faith in him. All Christians don't follow him. Some just stop there. They don't seem to go on too much. They go to church. They go through a little But they're not intent on following the rabbi. I think all of us who are Christians are called to be disciples. But that means we spend time with him. We spend time in the Word of God. Most Christians have never even read their Bible from cover to cover. How do you say you're a rabbi? You, don't, you, you follow the rabbi. You don't even want to know what the Word of God says. And that means we follow Him when we're not even sure where He's taking us. We must live by His teachings, which means we got to know the teachings. We must imitate Him wherever we can. So this thing in the past, you know, what would Yeshua do? We really need to ask that in this situation. How, How should I handle this situation? How can I represent my rabbi? How can I be what He's called me to be? Everything in life to a Talmud becomes secondary to being like Him. And really, that's what it's all about for us. We want to be like Him. Now, Lazarus ends this verse by saying, it was about the tenth hour. In the world, why you got to throw that in there? Now, here's the question that comes up here. Is John using the Jewish or the Roman method of marking time? It makes a huge difference. W. Hall Harris III writes this. There's a significant problem in verse 39 with the phrase, the tenth hour. What system of time is the author using? Westcott thought John, unlike the synoptics, was using Roman time. Roman time, basically our time. All right, same thing. Goes 12 midnight to 12 midnight. All right. Starts at midnight. This would make the time 10 a.m., which he says fits here. But later in the Gospel's Passover account, where the sixth hour is on the eve of Passover, it seems clear the author is using Jewish reckoning. Okay? So which is it? Which began at 6 a.m. This would make the time in verse 139 to be 4 p.m. So it's either 10 o'clock in the morning or it's 4 p.m. in the afternoon. He said, This may be significant if the hour was late. Andrew and the unnamed disciple probably spent the night in the same house where Yeshua was staying, and the events of 141 through 42 took place on the next day, the fourth day of the week. Now, so there's a lot of arguments, and you could go into all the arguments of what was it, and you know, personally, what I say is, who cares what hour it was. All right, that, that's, he's not, I don't think he's throwing this out there because you got to know it was four and they were spending the night with them, or it was 10 and they're spending all day. with. The idea is they're spending time with them. So why does Lazarus bring this detail out? It, it seems trivial to us. Why would he bring it out? I think if the idea here to Lazarus is, listen, this is the time that I decided to be a follower of Yeshua. And that's not a trivial thing for him. This is very significant. My life changed the day I became a follower, and that was at this time, whatever it be, whether it's 10 in the morning or 4 in the afternoon. It's a time that I decided to follow. I think it's something personal that just, he's just throwing in there. Then he goes to verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now John introduces Andrew as Simon Peter's brother. <laughs> Do you want to be known as someone's brother? No, you kind of want to be known as yourself, right? But because of the, of the late date that this gospel was written, Peter was way more known than Andrew. all right. So he says, oh, you know Peter, so let me say, Andrew, that's who Andrew is. He's the brother of this famous guy, Peter. All right. Now, what's interesting about Andrew is that every time we meet Andrew in this gospel, which is three times, every time we meet him, he's bringing somebody to Yeshua. And he serves as an excellent example of what a disciple of Yeshua is supposed to do. He said, hey, I found the Messiah. What's the first thing he does? I go get somebody else and bring him. He says he found first his own brother, Simon. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. All right. So the first thing he does is find his brother. Now, there's some textual criticism here and a lot of arguing on what this really means. All right. There's three different options. Basically, are the first thing Andrew did. Secondly, the first person he found Or I think the third, Andrew, was the first to go and tell. And I think that's it's just saying, the first thing this guy did after he found the Messiah is want to go out and get somebody else. He wanted to go tell somebody else, Simon. Now that tells us that Simon must have been in the Galilee, not in the Galilee region where they live. He must have been a follower of John the Baptist, because if he went and found him, he must have been down south there by Bethany. Because he didn't run all the way back up to Galilee and find his brother, because this is happening in one day here. He's he's there. They're down south across the river. His brother was also a follower of John the Baptist. He says, we have found the Messiah. Now, if you know the culture that day, there was a Messianic expectation at that time. Uh, the fervency. They were waiting for Messiah. They all knew about Messiah, and they were waiting for Him. The old covenant prophets had predicted You know, when this was going to happen. How did they have a clue that it was supposed to happen at their time? Daniel, all right? See, Daniel gave a timeline. And they knew how to tell time, you know, unlike people today. So they just followed the timeline. Let's go back to Daniel and look what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 9. So you are to know and discern. So it's something you should understand, all right? That from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. Alright, this is a timeline. It's going to end with Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again in the plaza and the moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood, even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined. So they knew these scriptures. They knew that Messiah was to arrive in their time. So they're looking for him. The term Messiah became one of the names of the promised Savior. The word Messiah occurs only four times in the scriptures. It's used in Daniel nine, twenty-five and twenty-six, John one forty-one and four twenty-five. Because Messiah is a Hebrew word meaning anointed one. And because John's readers only speak Greek, he again, he translates it to Greek, he says, the Messiah, the anointed one. Now, anointing in Jewish culture represented consecration to Yahweh's service. In some particular office, Aaron was anointed as a priest, David was anointed as a king, Elisha was anointed as a prophet. So the anointed one in Israel was originally any priest or king Who led the people. Now, as time passed on, Yahweh gave prophecies of a coming Davidic king who would liberate Israelites and establish Yeshua's rule on the whole earth. And thus, the idea of a coming anointed one crystallized into the title of Messiah. This is the one they awaited for so long. The one who they attached all their hopes for that nation. And so they say, we found him. I mean, can you imagine their excitement if they really believed this was Messiah? This is the time. Scriptures are going to be fulfilled. Now as a result of John's testimony and of Yeshua's teaching, Andrew is convinced Yeshua is the Messiah. So the first thing he does is go out and tell his brother. Now remember the Lazarus' purpose in writing this gospel is to convince his readers that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Christ. He says, "These things have been written so that you would believe that Yeshua is the Christ." They've come to believe it. So now they're trying to tell other people or Andrew's trying to tell others about it. We have very little information in Scripture about Andrew. One thing we know is that he brought his brother Peter to Christ. You know, Andrew never displays the same leadership abilities as Peter's. He doesn't walk on water like Peter did. He doesn't do any of these remarkable things. But you know what he did that was really, really important? He brought Peter to Yeshua. Okay? We think of Peter. You know, Peter's this great prophet of God who's used of God. You know, he preached on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people are saved. But guess what? And, And that's how, in our culture, we like to think big. You know, if we're not reaching multitudes of people, then our ministry is no good. But you know what? If all Andrew did was bring Peter to Messiah, he did a huge work in the kingdom of God because Peter was used in a mighty way. He just brought one person. And we got to stop thinking on the, you know, we got to bring multitudes. Listen, if you and your life can affect another person, open their eyes, get them to understand who the Christ is. He says He brought him to Yeshua. Yeshua looked at Him and said, You're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now Simon, that's a common Jewish name. Probably derived from Simeon, and Yeshua said, You shall be called Cephas. Cephas is Aramaic. It means rock. Peter's the Greek translation of Cephas. As the record of Peter unfolds in the Gospels, he appears to be anything but a rock. Alright? He's impulsive. He's volatile. He's unreliable. I'll never deny you! You know, he denies him three times. Yet Yeshua named Peter in view of what he would become by the power of God, not what he was then. And this is the only text in the Gospels that tells us how Peter got his name. That's one of the many original things this fourth Gospel brings in. The others tell us that his name is Cephas, They don't tell us how this all happened. Here, we're, we're let in on some new things, and there's a lot of value to this fourth Gospel. It has a lot of material the others don't talk about. Now, in the Old Covenant, one's name revealed the character nature of a person. A change of name indicated a change of nature. The Old Covenant stories of a changed name would involve the change of a relationship to God. And in John's Gospel, he identifies Simon Peter as the son of John four times. Here in chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, three times. But here's what's interesting. When you go to Matthew's Gospel, he calls him son of Jonah. So now we got a discrepancy. All right, which is it? Well, scholars usually offer one of two explanations. The first explanation is either John and Jonah were the same name, or that's you know the same name, they just different transcripts. Or they say this: John's gospel account is an error, and there's unresolved discrepancy. I'm like, why do you run to that so quickly? Okay, I don't. None of them said Matthew's an error some reason, they like Matthew. John must be an heir here. All right, he must have messed up. Well, Michael McGill says this. He says, Jonah and John may be alternate Greek spellings of the same Hebrew name like Simon and Simeon. That's an explanation. There there are many good explanations also. If you look at the context in Matthew, he's talking a lot about Jonah. And he's actually putting Peter in a role as Jonah. And that might be why he calls him son of Jonah. You know, there's... Like I said, there's different reasons for this. We don't know exactly why, but uh, like I said, it's not, you know, it's not something you have to have conniptions about. You know, the unbelievers will run to something like this. See, which is it? What? Well, who knows, you know? He says, Cephas, which is translated Peter. Lazarus is the only one of the Gospel writers that gives us the Greek transliteration of Simon's new name. All right, the only one that does that. Now, In verses 40 for 42, they provide an interesting and a significant sequence. It says, Andrew first speaks to Peter, declaring that Yeshua is the Messiah. Secondly, Andrew brings Peter to Yeshua. And finally, Yeshua speaks a life-changing word to Peter. Now, think about that for a second. It's a fact that most people who trust Christ do so because somebody they know, somebody they respect, Tells them about Christ. All right, there's a connection there. Now, listen, mass evangelism, cold turkey calling, you know, witnessing to strangers on airplanes. I think all of those, in some manner, produce some converts. You know, they have their place. You know, when I was, you know, on staff at the Baptist Church, they required us to go out on Saturdays and do door-to-door evangelism, and I'd be walking up to the door, and the Jehovah's Witnesses would be walking away from the door. And I thought, this is the most ridiculous thing in the world. I called it intrusion evangelism. Alright, we'll come to your house, we'll interrupt whatever you're doing, because we got something we want to tell you. And, you know, they don't know me from the man and the moon, so why should they listen to anything I have to say? I thought it was the most ridiculous thing in the world. And I really believe what is biblical is what's called lifestyle evangelism. Yeshua said, as you are going, preach the gospel. In other words... If you're talking to your coworker, they know you and you're sharing things. And guess what? If you're sharing what the Bible teaches about Christ and you're living an attractive, holy, righteous life and they're seeing virtues in you that they respect, they're like, maybe there's something to all this. Maybe there's something to all this. But on the other hand, if you're living an ungodly, immoral life and you're telling people about Christ, they're like, boy, I don't really want what you got. Okay? Keep it. So what I want you to see here is, you know, the majority of people who come to Christ come to Christ because a friend, a relative who they know, who they trust, has taken the time to share with them the important message of what Christ has done. I know in my own, you know, life, I came to Christ because a friend, a guy that I work with, who I respected, who I like, he came to me and he brought me a gospel track and he said, here, read this. I said, okay. So I stopped working. And I read the track. I'm standing there at work. I'm standing there looking around for the boss, you know. I'm just standing there reading. And when I read it, I was like, wow, terribly convicted. I was miserable all night. And I came back the next day and I said, okay, uh, you got to give me some more information on this. How do I come to know this savior, you know? And I, I just was really interested. I'd seen a lot of those tracks before in the bathrooms. You know, that's a favorite place Christians want to leave a track in the bathroom. You know, it's like, well, I got nothing to do in here. Let me read, you know, but you don't, who put this in here? You don't know. There's no connection there. And like I was saying, you know, it's possible people to be saved by that. Not no doubt, but you know, it's just much more personal. You have a much better opportunity of getting a hearing when you're talking to someone, you know, I really think that's what evangelism is all about. Just as you're going through your life on your job, at your school, in your neighborhood, live it, share it. And it goes down to the bottom line that I think is our calling in life. To know Him, or the song Thrive we sing, to know Him and to make Him known. And when you really know Him, you can't help but want to make Him known. You want to share what you know with those who don't know. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the Word of God. Lord, I thank You for Andrew, who we know very little about in Scripture but a man who did a great service for the kingdom of God and reaching out to his brother, sharing that he had found the Messiah. Father, give us that desire to share with those that we know, share with those that we are close to, connected with, what you mean to us. And Father, help us to be a living example of what Christianity is to be. Help us to be Talmud of the rabbi and that our goal in life it's simply Lord to be like you. Thank you for your grace, for your patience with us, Lord. Amen. All right, questions, comments on what we talked about today, <laughs> Gary. You were just talking about uh, and I Saturday going. I've been much more impressed and willing to listen to this teacher if he'd come up and grab a tool and start working. <laughs> yeah. and he was going he kind to of hammer those nails in with his pamphlet. Gary lives out in the middle of nowhere, okay? So, you know, you don't just accidentally show up at his house. But there, we're working there, working on the deck, and so this carpal's in, it. we're like, yay, more help! You know, we're excited! You know, hey, we've got some workers here! And who are they? Well, they get out and they got a suit on, I'm like, I turned around, and I said, it's Jehovah Witnesses. You know, and so Gary went over there, and sure enough, you know, we want to share with you, and we're like, we're kind of busy right now. And that's what I mean by intrusion evangelism. They pull up, they see, we're out there working on this project, why don't you stop what you're doing, because I have something I need to tell you, you know? And I really wanted to go talk to them, because I got some things to tell them. They don't know who Jehovah is, because there is no Jehovah. It is Yahweh, who, you know, you are to worship. But, you know, like I said, we were kind of busy, so we let that go. But, uh, yeah, they got back in their car and moved on. Usually you see them walking, but they can't walk in Gary's neighborhood, because they'd have a lot of walking to back do. In the car, went to right. Yeah, they, they right next door to Timmy and Savannah. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff? Um you mentioned, since you got in on the whole Yeshua th- thing again briefly, um, yeah. one of the questions th- that comes th- up, quite frequently on that little video on YouTube is why does it say the New Testament you should call his name Emmanuel and blah 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 why Emmanuel, Joshua, Joshua? Why is there this much Well I think a lot of those names, they're not really names. Emmanuel simply means God with us and that's the whole idea. You'll call his name he's God with us. That's what he was. So I don't think those are specific names like You know, they all represent character. And remember, in biblical times, name represents character, what a person is. But Yeshua is what they called him, okay? They didn't call hey, Emmanuel, you know, come over here. No, you don't see any accounts of that. It's Yeshua was his name. That's the birth name his mom gave him. That has very specific meaning. But these other titles that he was to be called, they got meaning also. But I don't think they were his personal name, all right? Um, I got a question. Why would John not redirect all his disciples to Yeshua? Danny from Montana. I think he did. I think that's what John's whole calling was, to redirect all his disciples toward that. But see, here's what happened. After John died, you got some disciples who just hung on, and we like John, we're going to worship John. And so they just, you know, how people attracted to a personality, that was never John's intention. You know, he wanted to decrease, he wanted to get out of the way, but, you know, there were followers, you know, because we see that later in the book of Acts. Hey, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? They said, we didn't know there was one. We're disciples of John. What? You guys are still hanging on? (laughs) Do you know what John's purpose was? It was to point to Yeshua. So get away from, you know, this whole thing of John and let's move on. So I think John did. I think he directed all of his disciples, not just some of them, but in this account, he's standing with two of them, all right? It's just a, a simple account that he's giving a narrative. These two guys, you know, are standing there talking, and Yeshua's walking by, and so he says, Hey, the Lamb of God, go follow him. That's the one I'm talking about. That's the one who you're to follow now. John? On the map that you had up there, two questions. Where was the wilderness in which John lived and preached and ate locusts and all that? And was it the same wilderness that Jesus was led to be tempted before he did? Yeah, the wilderness was uh, you know, to the Jews it was a place of darkness, you know, in uh in the Passover. No, Day of Atonement. All right, they take the two goats. Your Bible translates it scapegoat. That's a horrible translation. The better translation, the goat for Azazel. Azazel is a false god, a demon, so to speak. He lives in the wilderness. The wilderness is inhabited by demons. So they took and they put their sins on this goat, and they'd send it to Azazel, where it belonged. Our sins belong in the wilderness, in the desert, this wicked place. All right, so he is down there. That is a desert area. I mean, there's not much around there. Uh, if Yeshua doesn't keep you alive, Yahweh doesn't keep you alive. You die out there because there's not much to eat, there's not much water. Well, he's down at the river, and that's where he's preaching. In other words, but the the reason he's there, this is a very significant place. This is where the children of Israel crossed to come into the promised land. This is where Elijah was taken, you know, from the the earth. And so, you know, they're expecting Elijah to come back as a forerunner. Wouldn't he come back to the same place he was gone? So this was a very significant place to them. But yeah, Yeshua went out. And when he was tempted, where did he go? In the desert to be tempted of the devil. Why? Because that's the devil's area, the wilderness. All right? So they're out in this wilderness, this desolate place. And... So not too far from Jerusalem. North. Well it's it's a it's a, about a twenty mile downhill hike through very rough terrain. Now, twenty miles you think oh, it's not too far, I can drive that. No, they didn't drive, okay. They're walking in their sandals, twenty miles. So in that sense, it's a long hike now. It's way further to Galilee, of course. All right, and you're gonna see as we get in here a lot of a lot of stuff going on up there in Galilee. That's where the rabbis were who really had a hunger for God. In Jerusalem, it's just we got a big mess down there. You call him John, you call him John, <laughs> son of John. <laughs> Anybody else? That of the of David? David, David, John. Yeah, it was up there. And again, why is he ministering up there? That's where they want. They were waiting. They were hungry. They knew the scriptures. He goes down to Jerusalem. These guys, they just want to kill him because they got a political thing going on. And you're rocking our boat. A lot of people are following you. We don't like that. We're the head daddy rabbits around here. You know, you get out of here. They didn't care about scripture. They didn't care about anything. You know, it was just a political system had nothing to do with Yahweh. All right. Remember, the Holy of Holies in that temple was empty. And that temple represented the dwelling place of Yahweh. He was on the throne. That's what that whole box was. It was a throne that God sat on. Well, guess what? It's not there because God's not there. But he came back to Jerusalem in the person of Yeshua. And all they can say is, we got to get rid of this guy. We don't even want him around. When it says that he spoke in parables so that they wouldn't understand, isn't he talking about the Yeah, that's what he's talking about. Those leaders in Jerusalem. You know, we talked about this earlier, but Jews, when, when you see Jew in the Gospel of John, it's primarily those who are against Christ. That's how he uses it, primarily. A few ways other times, but that's, that's the primary thing.